today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking further at the New Testament. Father Franks will join us to examine whether or not we can believe what is written in the New Testament, or, like critics allege, whether it's just a collection of pious stories. Are the Gospels actually anonymous, or can we prove that they were written by the evangelists? And can we really show that over 2,000 years they haven't been changed or been embellished at all? We'll dive into that and much more. You can find notes to all these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Paul Isaac Franks for episode number 13 of the Apologetic Series. Father Franks, welcome back. How are you today? Good to see you, Andrew. I'm doing fine, thank you. Good, good, fine. Fine covers up a multitude of things. You know what? It's (laughs) it's a good day because uh, college is finished, all the exams are done, graduation is done, and uh, my mom's coming into town next this week, and I'm training for a bike ride in Spain, and there's a lot going on, and it's all going good. It's going to be fine. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yep. What kind of what kind of bike ride is it? Is it a uh, just for fun, or are you doing like a, a Camino I'm type thing? Or Camino, yeah, I'm doing a Camino, and it's a pilgrimage, and it's also going to be a fundraiser for my chapel in Wichita. Excellent. That's great. That's great. Good for you. Um, in fact, yeah. That was it. I was going to say, in fact, oh. uh, our friend who nobody knows that he's here in this room with me, Joe Lanthier, made made me a little video for that, which he's going to be working on, you know, very soon. Probably, probably today he's going to be working on that for me. So <laughs> That's great. Well, looking forward to seeing, uh, to seeing more about that. And uh yeah, we'll, we'll throw some links for a fundraiser for the chapel on there as well. I was just going to say, I mean, sounds like things are quieting down for you, but no, you are filling your plate with other things. I'm shocked. That is correct. <laughs> well, Father, thanks for making the time, though, to talk to us. Um, we are going to be doing an episode with you on the resurrection, on the greatest miracle of our Lord's life. We've, we've already talked about the, the miracles of our Lord with, uh, with Father Palco, the divinity of our Lord with Father Themen. Uh, but before we get into the resurrection, we wanted to take kind of a step back and look at the New Testament. We've already seen that the Old Testament is reliable, that there is this truth in the Old Testament, uh, but we haven't really taken a moment to look at the New Testament with that same sort of lens. So right. um, when we talk about the historicity of the New Testament, I guess broadly, why is it important? I mean, that's kind of a gimme question, but why is it so important that the New Testament is is truthful? Because the events that we have that found the fact of Christian revelation are narrated in the New Testament. And if they didn't actually happen on planet Earth, then we're building on sand. So we need, uh, we need to go from reliable historical documents that tell us what happened. The only proof, the only way to find out what happened is to have somebody who was there who saw it and recorded it accurately. That's the way that um, historical truth is determined in a court of law, and that's the way that truth is determined by historians. And we have 
a religion that we claim is objectively true based on objective historical facts. So we need reliable documents to prove that those facts happened. So how do you how do you look at and I guess just broadly any document that is historical, anything that was written in the past, what are the what are the criteria that we're looking at when we try to prove that something is historically accurate? So his, yeah, histor- historicity is th- that um, the fact that a document deserves to be given historical credence. It's a historical work, and um, we're in that work, we're looking for authenticity. It's not a forgery. Veracity, the author's... So authenticity, the, the author is who we think the author is. It's not a f- late, later forgery or something. Veracity, the author told the truth. And then we need to see integrity of the text that we still actually substantially have what the author wrote. Those are what we're going to be looking for. And I suppose as a prelude to that, we'd want to establish that the text was meant to be written and understood historically. So if somebody writes an epic poem and then you take it as a history, then you have problems. Right. Right. The Epic of Gilgamesh didn't actually happen. Oh, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, but that's that's the point. I mean, you look at at, uh, at previous historical works of fiction or Don Quixote, right? right? You would never say, "Oh, that that's actual that that actually happened." Right. Um, so is it was it meant to be understood this way? Was it meant to be a historical document? Perfect. Yeah. So that's those are the three things we need to establish really. Were the gospels authentic? So as far as authenticity goes, there are two things to consider. First of all, was it written when it was meant to be written? And second of all, was it written by the person it was meant to be written by? So the first thing is just, are they first century documents at all? Or are they like fourth century documents? Because if they're fourth century documents, the claim to be written by eyewitnesses gets much less convincing, right? right? And it's having eyewitness accounts or accounts from eyewitnesses that really help us to establish what happened with historical um, accuracy. So we have some external evidence that these books were written, these documents were written in the first century. And the external evidence is they were quoted in the first century mm-hmm. or in the second century. So they already they were already existed by then. So the, the Didache, which was the called the Doctrine of the Twelve Apostles, purported to be written by the Twelve Apostles, or that does some contain the doctrine of them, written at least by 130 AD, maybe as early as 95 AD, quotes passages from Matthew's and Luke's Gospels. The Epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, which is around 96 AD, contains passages from Matthew and Mark. There are seven epistles of St. Ignatius of Antioch around 106 AD that quote Matthew, Luke, and John. Then there's an epistle attributed to Barnabas, which is about 100 AD to 130 AD, contains many allusions to Matthew, several from Mark, several to Luke. And the Gnostic writings of the second century abound in quotes from the Gospels. So we already have a first century authorship. So the question is, is there anything within the text that would su- suggest that, yes, they're written in the right sort of Greek, they're written in Koine Greek, which was the common colloquial Greek used by Jewish writers of the first century, and 
another indication that they might be written by sort of Jewish authors is the inclusion of many Jewish idioms in the texts. So, for example, um, unless you eat my flesh, well, flesh meaning body, um, what can man give in exchange for his soul? Uh, the whole idea of soul meaning life and so on, maybe that's a bad example, but Jewish Jewish idioms. So there's a suggestion of, of a first century Jewish authorship on the whole. On top of that, there's a very um, complicated geopolitical, social, sociopolitical situation that they're describing because they're describing an occupied um, occupied Jewish territory under Roman rule with different systems of government, different systems of coinage, a coinage for the temple, coinage for the taxes to Caesar, and a, a particular topography as well that is all very accurate, stunningly mm. accurate. And this is notable because in 66 to 70 AD, there were the Jewish, the, the, you know, the wars of Jewish rebellion, which led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the ravaging of the countryside, brought enormous changes in government, brought enormous changes in the population, and it would have been very difficult for a later author, having, when those political situations had passed, unless they'd been an expert historian, to have recreated accurately all of the nuances of first century life as it was in Jerusalem and, 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 the, and its environs at that time. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, yeah, there are later, later writings that try to recreate that sort of particular climate and, and without, without great accuracy. Sure. Another suggestion within the text itself that these texts were written no later than 70 AD with the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem, 70-71, is um, none of them make reference to the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. Now, if they had been written later than that event, it would have been easy to make mention to it, make mention of it, because particularly it could be pointed at as a fulfillment of one of the prophecies of Christ, which would lend weight to the Christian claim that he's a, a prophet, a divine teacher, and God himself, because Christ pre predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so it would have been, he said this, and indeed it came to pass. And look, it happened. And yeah. none of the evangelists say that. So from an external, from internal evidence, it would seem as well, there's strong suggestion that these are first century texts um, of largely Jewish authorship written by eyewitnesses to things happening in the first century and before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That's the suggestion. Now, the question is, that being so, who are the authors? What's the authorship? How do you find out what the authorship is? Well, What do the ancient records of authorship say? There's a lot to read about this. If you want to read in excruciating detail about this, go and get the uh, first volume 1A of the Sacrae Theologiae Summa 
written by um, some Jesuit fathers, Jesuit theologians, very, very step-by-step, systematic, weighty tome that will um, take you through, and it's for each one, the, the authorship of Matthew, 15 pages. The authorship of Luke, <laughs> 15 pages. Objections. The authorship of everything, Acts, everything. It's sort of big chunk in the, in the first volume. Um, probably above the uh, pay grade for this podcast, but um, not above the pay grade of a, of a serious student. So go and get it, read it. Yeah. And what do we have to say? Because there is this theory, this kind of a theory that the, the Gospels were not written by, by eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses. They were just written later. They were written as a kind of elaboration of some kind of storytelling in the, in the, the kind of like folk stories and elaborations, and everybody adds a little bit onto their folk stories. And then later they were written down and given kind of a spurious authorship. So they didn't have the original authorship. They weren't written by, by eyewitnesses. This is a story, um, a kind of narrative that you can find in something like a book called How Jesus Became God by Bart Ehrman, which is referenced by um, Dr. Brent Petrie in his book, A Case for Jesus. And he says that it was common for him in his undergraduate days to hear this, this account. Oh, the Gospels were these anonymous stories, and then n- names were put to them later. And what he says is, okay, first of all, this is Dr. Petrie, there's no ancient manuscript. All the ancient manuscripts have attributions. None of them is without an attribution. None of them is, doesn't claim to be by this author or by that author. There are no, none of them that are presented as anonymous. And second, um, there's a fairly unanimous I mean, there's a unanimous recognition of the traditional authorship in the, amongst the ancient authors of the first, second, third century. Let's say second, third century. So it seems to be beyond belief that anonymous stories should receive recognition of the same authorship universally. This is kind of like, that's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty big coincidence unless there's somebody orchestrating the conspiracy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and no one's making that sort of a claim that there was this broad, widespread conspiracy at, at this time. They're I've just, not heard it. No. Don't, don't, never say never when the internet's are the thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so add to that that it seems like if you were trying to lend credibility to your made-up folk stories by giving them the name of a Christian disciple, why wouldn't you just go for the heaviest hitters, right? The gospel according to St. Peter. The gospel according to St. Andrew, the first apostle ever. You know, John, yeah, St. John is is a heavy hitter. But Matthew, he was a tax collector. He was not amongst the top of the apostles. You know, he's not Peter, John, and James who were there uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, it's just to Matthew. It's not a heavy hitter. And then 
Mark and Luke were not even eyewitnesses. They, were, they had direct access to eyewitnesses, we claim, and they interviewed the eyewitnesses. They weren't eyewitnesses. If you're going to make up fake names to give your things authenticity, the, illusion, the semblance of authenticity, why not just get the heaviest hitters and the eyewitnesses and put their names on them? As the later heretics did, right? The gospel according to Peter, the gospel according to right. Judas, the gospel according to Mary Magdalene. Right. That would be the that would be the easy fix to add veracity, but they didn't do that. So the uh, the early church fathers are unanimous about who wrote the gospels, in fact. Papias was a bishop of Hierapolis in Phrygia around 130 AD. He was a friend of St. John. He was a friend of Polycarp, St. Polycarp. He was the teacher of St. Irenaeus. And he makes mention by name of Matthew and Mark as authors of the Gospels. So this is um, cited for us in Eusebius. He says, um, quoting him, he says, the presbyter used to say, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, albeit not in order, whatever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him. So, and then um, Irenaeus says of Papias, he was an, a hearer of John, a companion of Polycarp, a very old man who wrote five books. Speaking of Matthew, Papias says, indeed, Matthew wrote down the divine sayings in the Hebrew language, but everyone interpreted them as he was able. So he's talking about Matthew. The common opinion there is that he wrote not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic, which was the commonly day-to-day -day language of, of the Jews of, the, of that time. And when it says everyone interpreted as he was able, he's talking about the Christians who lived in Asia Minor, interpreting it from Aramaic into Greek. Then we've got Justin Martyr, 150, in his first apology. He makes a general reference to the Gospels and says, On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. So he's saying the Gospels are read. We know that the Gospels were read in the, the Christian community. And he's saying they are the, the memoirs of the apostles. Uh, Tatian, who was a disciple of St. Justin around 170 AD, writes a book called the Diatessaron, which is a continuous harmonization of the four Gospels into one book. So they're all existing and in his possession by then. St. Irenaeus in about 180 AD, who's a disciple of Papias, a friend of St. Polycarp, he was martyred, um, St. Polycarp was martyred 155 or so, mentions all four Gospels in his book, Adversus Heresis, Against Heresies. And he writes, Matthew also issued a, a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and laying the foundation for the church. After their departure, Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter also handed down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book of the gospel, book the gospel were preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So his information is secondhand from Polycarp, who was a, a witness of a disciple of St. John, kind of third generation, my granddad used to say kind of thing in Christian terms. Sure. Tertullian, 180 or so AD, 
considered it beyond doubt, beyond debate that the apostles, that the gospels have been in the possession of the church since the time of the apostles. When he's writing against Marcion, the heretic Marcion, he says, the same authority of the apostolic churches will afford evidence to the other gospels also, which we possess equally through their means according to their usage. I mean, the gospels of John and Matthew, or that of which Mark publishes may be affirmed to be Peter's, whose interpreter Mark was, as well as Luke's, of course. He doesn't mention that by name in that passage. And then, um, speaking of Tertullian, um, in the third century, of the apostles, John and Matthew first instill the faith into us. The same authority of the apostolic churches will also afford evidence to the other gospels. Origen, names all the evangelists in the order that we traditionally named them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, one of his sermons goes like this. With his sacerdotal trumpet, first Matthew sounded forth in his gospel, also Mark, Luke, and John, announced with their own sacerdotal trumpets. Nevertheless, John also added to this by sounding his trumpet through his epistles in the book of Revelation, and Luke did the same by describing the deeds of the apostles. So it's pretty clear. In fact, so, it's not disputed. There is n- the, right. the books have to have come from the first century because we have, have some quotes from them taken around that time, or at least to have been partially complete by then, at the very least. I think they were complete by then. And so they have to have first century authors. And in antiquity, more or less everybody gives the same authorship and nobody contests it. Not even the enemies of the church. So even heretics and, and pagans who are, this is Irenaeus on, on the, the heretics, how they don't deny the authorship. So firm is the ground upon which these gospels rest that the very heretics themselves bear witness to them. And starting with these, the, the, the gospels, each one of them endeavors to establish his own peculiar doctrine. Since then our opponents bear testimony to us and make use of these, our proof derived from them is firm and true. Not even the people who want to dissent from Christianity um, reject that apostolic authorship. So, in fact, the, uh, the heretics like Marcionites, Gnostics, Valentinians, just pick one of the Gospels, except that it was written by an apostle, and make it the basis of their teachings. It wasn't going to be until the time of the Manichaeans and St. Augustine, the, the authorship of the Gospels would come into any sort of dispute whatsoever. It's beyond dispute in the first centuries of, of the church. It, so basically everyone who's writing anything of any importance in the church, in or around the church, I guess we should say, you know, we have Origen, we have, we have Irenaeus, we have uh, Papias. All, all of these people within the church are saying, yes, these were written at this time by these people. And then we have people quote unquote, outside the church, people who are heretics, pagan critics, etc. they're saying the same thing. Yes, it was written at this time by these people. Right. So, yeah, it happened. <laughs> even, even, so Chelsus was uh, an enemy of Christianity. Uh, we only have his works now cited in Origen, who was going in a back, kind of back and forth written debate with him. But Origen okay. quotes Chelsus saying, the disciples of Jesus having no undoubted fact on which to rely devised the fiction that he foreknew everything before it happened. 
the disciples of Jesus wrote such accounts regarding him by way of extenuating the charges that told against him. So what's he saying? Yeah, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, wrote the Gospels, but they just made up the prophecies. But he, mm-hmm. if he could have said, since he's working against Christianity, they didn't even write them. They were second century forgeries or something. Would have been the obvious thing to say. He couldn't say it because it's not true and everybody was left to him. So um, it just wasn't, the authorship wasn't really just seriously disputed in the first days of the church. So, okay. um, and certainly that, if it was any other document that wasn't a document claiming miraculous happenings and founding a Christian religion, that would probably settle it for the authorship, I would think. Right. But right. Um, so having established that, the, the authenticity of the documents that they came from the first century and um, that there's every reason to think that they, the traditional authorship is, is valid, well, there's certainly a lot of debate there. You can go into in sure. endless detail if you want. Um, I would suggest there's lots of, uh, we can give book lists for people who want to get into the weeds, but this is sufficient for our, our scope. Having established sure. that authenticity. So that's, that's the authority or authenticity. authenticity. Then, then we have the question of the veracity. Right. If they're eyewitnesses or they it had direct access to the eyewitnesses and they interviewed them, then they have, they're well informed. Now the question is, did they tell the truth? It's veracity. Did they lie? Did they make it up? Did they spin it? Did they tell the truth? So, because we've got two eyewitnesses, Matthew and John, and then two interviewers of eyewitnesses. Mark, who had access to St. Peter. St. Peter calls him my son, Mark. And um, he was also cousin to St. Barnabas, according to Colossians. 410 to 411. Then St. Luke, likely a Gentile, because he's not mentioned amongst the uh, men of the circumcision in Colossians. He's called a physician by trade in Colossians 4 and turned into a a Christian missionary and a disciple of St. Paul, had access to St. Paul um, to interview him. So since the, uh, the authors had nothing to gain from inventing this story, which brought them only persecution, um, no glory, no fame, no money, no pleasure, no comfort. It brought them only religious rejection from the mainstream co-religionists of their day and um, being driven from town to town and ultimately being killed in the most part, or at least being willing to die, it's hard to see what basis they could have had for fabricating the story. It doesn't make sense for them just to do it because they had been disappointed in their messianic claim because um, Jesus was dead, according to this reading. And... um, it would have made more sense just to do what other failed messianic movements do, creep back home or just go out and find another messiah. 
if he really right. wasn't. Why would you? Why would you hang on to this failed, quote unquote, failed mission? This failed idea that 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 this one man was the Messiah. You would just disappear. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then, I think probably one of the strongest arguments is: look, if you have a first-century text, first-century authorship writing about events that happened in the first century, that in itself obliges you to tell the truth. Because guess what? The people who were there or people who could have seen what was going on are still alive or their kids are still alive. So they can check out your story if you don't tell the truth. Now, part of the problem here is determining and then part of the argument of, of the modernists is to determine what genre are the, uh, the Gospels written in. Are they written in the genre of history or not? Because obviously, we spoke about this earlier, Gilgamesh, right? If something isn't intended to be a historical work, then you're foolish if you read it historically. You know, if I start reading the historical truth in Alice in Wonderland, I have problems. And I'm not going to get to the <laughs> truth. Um, right. So the gospel, write, the gospel writers wrote in a Greco-Roman tradition of bioi, bioi, uh, we'd say in, in Latin vitae, lives, the lives, bioi. And we could call that ancient biography in English. So there are common examples of this, Suetonius's Lives of the Caesars, uh, Philo's Moses, Tacitus's Agricola. There, it's a, a whole, it's a genre of um, giving the lives of famous or eminent people. There's a scholar called Richard Burridge who says in his book, What are the Gospels? And in his article, The Person of Christ, that these biographers, these biographies, he summarizes the genre of, of the bioi. He quotes, he says that they are, quote, continuous prose narratives of the length of a single scroll composed of stories, anecdotes, sayings, and speeches. And that, quote, unlike modern biographies, Greco-Roman lives do not cover a person's whole life in chronological sequence and have no psychological analysis of the subject character. They may begin with a brief mention of the hero's ancestry, family, or city, his birth, and an occasional anecdote about his upbringing, but usually the narrative moves rapidly onto his public debut later in life. Unquote. So all of these aspects are seen in huh. the Gospels. They're not, it's not meant to, I mean, it's, that makes sense of the missing years between the infancy narratives, and they didn't write anything about them. Yeah, but that's not what the, the genre was concerned with. So they were understood. Right as historical works. Um, as presenting history. Oh, that's fascinating. There's more to read about that. Um, or if you're really interested in the, in the historiography of, well, there's a book called, uh, what's it called? The historiography of the resurrection or something by Licona. He talks all about this, the kind of the generic conventions around it and um, placing the Gospels in their historical context and in, in generic context and so on. But no, even for the, 
as understanding what, what the, the genre of the Gospels is, it's very important because it's one of the things of the modernists. The modernists want to say, oh, St. John's Gospel was never intended as a historical work. It was a meditation, a theological meditation yeah. on profound religious truths that was never meant to be taken literally. And it's like, no, that's not the genre. So the genre can make applications of history. You know, you can make... Um, you can turn historical events to an apologetic end or to a political end or whatever, and that's possible in this in this work of of you know writing writing in the genre of writing bioi. But it's not right. um, not to say that they were not intended historically. The, so hmm. the style of the narrations is an account of historical facts. That's it. So, and the ancients understood these as historical accounts. So both Catholics and non-Catholics, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Irenaeus, although they tended to read them in the light of allegorical meanings and high mystical meanings, they still always understood that they were historical works first and foremost. And even the enemies of Christianity as well, Chelsus, Porphyry, he argued from the gospel and just... Even the miracles, you might be talking about this with Father Themen or Father Palco, I don't know who, but they didn't even argue against the, the historical existence of the miracles. So um, Origen in his book Contra Chelsum introduces Chelsus as speaking this way of the miracles of Christ. Those things that mag magicians do, he did. Well, like um, he says that he worked wonders, but like those things that magicians do, promising always greater and greater things, and they do things after being trained in the Egyptians' arts. So the implication, mm. even Chelsea's an enemy of Christianity, he's not like Jesus didn't do miracles. He says, yeah, he did miracles, no, he but did. he probably learned them when he was in Egypt from the Egyptian sorcerers, and he was trained in them, and then he used them as a kind of part of his like confidence trick to get people to follow his religious message or whatever they, Chelsea's thought he was doing. So, yeah. so they don't impugn the historicity of of the texts, or they don't say these were never intended to be read historically. They're like, yeah, he did miracles. This is historical fact, or he did strange things, but he did them by trickery, by witchcraft, yeah. whatever it is. So it's interesting, and you know what is interesting as well that supports the idea of of them being true history is that they sh the writers show tremendous restraint in portraying what Jesus really did and said. And this can be frustrating for Christians who want more details, you know. It can be, because sometimes it's just like, that's it? Like, that's what you got? Can you fill in the details? I mean, it's the Holy Ghost, we believe. By, that's not for apologetics, that's by our Christian faith. We believe it's the Holy Ghost primary yeah. author, so the Holy Ghost gave us what he wanted to give us. But so, sometimes you think it would have been nice to have more details, you know? And he did many more of these things that are not written here in this book. Right. And you kind of go, tell me, and that tell has, me what it was. That's led to a lot of, um, well, a lot of the mystics have filled in the details, you know, with the pri private revelations and so on, where they've been, they've seen more of the details of what was happening in the Gospels. And uh, some people read that and it sort of find that it helps them to build a fuller picture. 
And some of the, the mm-hmm. mystics have seen credible mystics with, with legitimate private revelations, we can believe, um, have filled in the details in ways that are incompatible with each other. So yeah. the idea that it's yeah. more for the nourishing of the piety of the, the one receiving that and than it is necessarily that God has revealed more. We certainly know God doesn't reveal more publicly to be believed by all, but my point is there's quite a lot of restraint shown by the authors. They don't have, for example, Christ weighing in on the debates of the day that were writing that it would have been, if they could have used him as a mouthpiece to um, settle contemporary debates, you know, what would Christ have said about meat sacrificed to idols? What would Christ have said about the, whether or not circumcision is obligatory or non-obligatory for Gentile converts to Christianity? Would have been so simple just to slip that right into the gospels. If you would, if if you were not concerned for historical accuracy, and you had an axe right. to grind, you could have put it in. Well, and on the flip side, the quote unquote difficult things, yeah, they went ahead and included them as well, mm-hmm. and they even say that in the gospel. You know, talking about when when Christ first revealed uh, that that he would require people to eat his flesh and drink his blood, we, and the, we can think about that the, with the, the resurrection apostle. as well. I mean. The fact that right. the, the presentation of the first witnesses of the resurrection of women who had no status as witnesses in Jewish law of the, of the day. Right. Like, why would you make a detail like that up if you weren't concerned for historical mm-hmm. accuracy? Unless you were playing a long game of reverse psychology on a genius scale. I don't know. Sure. I mean, so do you want a long quote from the... Uh, on Christian revelation from the Psychotheologiae Summa. Yeah. Sure, or we can put it in the notes as well. But yeah, if you want to go for it, go for it. Okay, we'll just put it in the notes. Um, he just says, there's, no, there's, there's certainly about their knowledge because they're immediate witnesses having contact or familiarity with other witnesses of the first order. Um, they weren't authors who did not write at a time far removed from the events. They wrote a short time after them. And he gives the authorship that the authors defend in that book. Matthew around the year 45, Mark between 53 and 58, Luke between 58 and 62. Therefore, the Gospels were written between the years, these Gospels written between the years 45 and 62. Now you have to go to the Sacrotheologiae Summa for the whole argument of why he puts the Gospels at that time. These okay. things that the authors down were simple to narrate and easy to remember, hence they could be handed on easily. So their sayings could easily be preserved by oral and written tradition because of their form, such as maxims and parables. This is especially the case with men of the East where this oral tradition was very common and was also aided by written sources. So, um, and then he talks about the the question of fraud. Fraud was impossible internally. No one lies gratuitously, and the authors of the Gospels could not have any motive for lying. They spurned riches, the pleasures of life, honors. They could expect absolutely nothing, no advantage from their fraud, except persecution, death, and ignominy. If they had intended to obtain only temporal advantages from their desire of glorifying from their desire of glorifying Christ, they would have chosen various deceits and other ways of portraying the image of Christ. That is, they would have described the Messiah and his kingdom and doctrine in the way the crowds and leaders of the people were expecting them to be. 
If the authors of the Gospels had written down such fictions and similar falsehoods, they would have committed a very grave crime against God and religion by using blasphemous deception, and they would be very evil men. However, such crimes in them must be totally excluded, for the purity of their morality is apparent from their teaching, and what is more, from their life and from their death. Then B, fraud is impossible externally, because it could be easily known, and they could easily have been contradicted for their falsehood by other contemporary witnesses and by those still living. Consider the case of Matthew, writing to his contemporary Jews shortly after these events. Both the enemies of the new religion and those who sincerely loved Christ could easily have refuted any false statements found in the gospel, namely those who had seen the contrary as immediate witnesses or had heard the contrary from eyewitnesses. Moreover, Matthew agrees on many things for, with Mark and Luke. In fact, friends or enemies would have rejected it if the Gospels had narrated falsehoods, both because of hatred of the new religion limiting them and their natural tendencies, and because of the love of the truth in others who had a strong religious sense. But it is certain that there was no such rejection according to the historical record of things narrated, at most concerning the supernatural interpretation of the facts. On the contrary, there's certain the certainty about recognition and veneration which these Gospels obtained from the first Christians, so much so that they're quoted in the earliest writings, the Didache, the Letter to St. Barnabas, St. Clement of Rome, Ignatius, St. Polycarp, and even the heretics themselves, Cherinthus, Valentinus, Marcion, did not consider them to be false, but in general accepted them, although they did mutilate some things because of the subjective opinions that did not agree with their own theories. Wow. An internal examination of this gospel shows the veracity of the authors. They write in an objective manner, not inserting their own ideas and the impressions about the recorded facts. They write frankly without oratorical flourish, even when they're narrating sublime and great things. They, they, you will not find oriental image, for example, in the account of the incarnation. They don't write about themselves in order to build themselves up. If they sometimes must say something about themselves, about their companions, it's done so candidly, not to promote themselves, but to put themselves down, frankly and openly admitting their stupidity, stupidity, cowardice, and ambition. What the Synoptic Gospels narrate agrees completely, not only with the geography, but also with the affairs of the time, which we know from profane history. For example, Luke 2, if the universal census taken under Quirinus about the year 8 before Christ on the authorities of Palestine and Judea, likewise about the factions and political and re religious and social sects, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and the customs and morals of the Jews. Here recall everything we said about developing internal arguments for the genuineness of the Gospels. These Gospels briefly but accurately and consistently describe the character of the persons, especially in portraying the image of Christ. In this case, all harmoniously present him as a perfect human exemplar, but at the same time as an exemplar raised above the messianic ideas of the time, an admirable exemplar of perfection that's natural and attractive, so much so that the only sufficient reason for the description of the figure is the objective and historical reality of his person and the things narrated about him, for false images eventually are recognized and disappear. This cannot be the fruit of the thinking of unrefined fishermen. It comes from an objective preaching of what really happened. So, there's every yeah, reason there to go. think the gospel writers were well informed of the events that they narrated, that they were intending to write history, and they presented it trustworthy, in a trustworthy manner. Authenticity, yeah. veracity. It just doesn't make sense. It, it, it goes beyond the pale of any sort of credibility to think that, that the people who wrote these, and again, we've, we've already seen the authenticity part 
everyone is saying at the time, these guys wrote it, and now to say that they made this up, how? How is it possible unless they saw it or unless they're interviewing the person who saw it? It just, it really stretches a lot of credibility. I mean, it would be, it would be sort of like saying, uh, yeah, I'm going to go down to, you know, to talk to a guy who, who flunked his GED, never, never got it, uh, has just been working as a janitor for the last 30 years and have him write the most, uh, fantastical piece of, of narrative fiction that I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. Could it happen? Uh, very unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> Very. Right. And then add in all the other stuff, right? right? Plus there's four of them and they all agree with each other. Right. Mm. So then we come to the question of the integrity. The integrity of the documents. Do we have substantially what they wrote? So even if they told the truth and they knew what they were talking about, if we don't have the original text, because it's been, I don't know, corrupted by mo medieval monks or something, <laughs> um, then we're still not in a good place for using it for founding historical claims. So what can we say about integrity? The books of the New Testament were read liturgically by Christians, and the Christians were scrupulously attached to the wording of Scripture. You, have you ever been in a traditional Catholic parish where somebody changes something, anything, that was done the way it was done before. Yes. Even if it's like correcting something that's really not a good practice or m might be even erroneous. Um, well, the, the, the example that springs to mind right, right away is that gets people yeah, riled up. The, or, or like the St. Joseph prayer, right? That's, that's a little bit different. It, it seems like in all of our different chapels and people are kind of like trying to talk over each other and it gets kind of cranky, right? Yeah. That happens. So, <laughs> I suspect that Chris, well, I mean, so much more so, I mean, there's a human tendency to want things to be the same, but mm -hmm. I, so much more so when it's the wording of scripture that is the word of God, that we you firmly believe is the word of God. So being read in Christian gatherings, that gave a kind of guarantee of publicity to the text of the gospels. And if people... If the slightest word was changed, people freaked out. So Pope Damasus asked St. Jerome to revise the old Latin text, but he was so nervous of being accused of corrupting the text that he nearly didn't. Afterwards, St. Augustine writes to St. Jerome and tells him, uh, I have to return to the original version. I can't take the revision that you've given me because my people basically rioted. Why? Because... Um, the word ivy was changed for the word God. And mm. they, they were like, no, you're changing the text. You're a modernist. You're making everything up. So, um, so he had to go back to the older version. Um, what can we say? The New Testament has better evidence for its reliable preservation than non-biblical ancient texts, even those that are universally considered to be reliably preserved. So according to um, Dr. Sean McDowell, and Dr. Ed Gravely, there are about 6,000 New Testament manuscripts written in Greek, 50 of which can be dated to within 250 years of the originals. There are 1,500 manuscripts written in other languages like Coptic, Latin, Syriac. The first complete copy of the New Testament can be dated to within 300 years of the original documents. So um, the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Vaticanus 
both written very close to each other. Okay, so we've got a ton of manuscripts from pretty early on, given that the original materials that these manuscripts were written on were degradable. Yeah. Compare, for example, to the Iliad. We have a few fragments dated within 500 years of Homer. The oldest complete copy was written in the 10th century AD, Venatus A, 1800 years after it was originally written. And very few people are denying the, the integrity of the text of the, the Iliad. And there won't be scholarly dispute about this or that word, this or that detail. Sure. But as a whole, um, the Annals of Tacitus, we have one manuscript for books one to six. We have one manuscript for books 11 to 16. They're both from medieval manuscripts. And nobody's like, oh, we don't have the manuals of Tacitus. The Dialogues of Plato. There are 200 to 250 ancient manuscripts. The earliest is Papyrus 2993, which is 100 years after Plato died. The first complete manuscript is the Clark Manuscript from the 9th century AD. And then the text of the Gallic Wars, Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have about a dozen copies. The earliest is written about a thousand years after the fact. Those are all considered as texts that we have. Reliable. Yeah, we yeah. have the, well, there might be some scholarly dispute here and there about this and that. But everybody agrees we substantially have the original text. It's not. Well, speaking of speaking of scholarly dispute, isn't there some variance in in some of these manuscripts that we have of the scriptures as well? Right, there are. There is some. There definitely is some um, some slight variation between the the manuscripts of scripture that we find. Uh, we have copies that copies of the originals that differ in some places, which is quite. There's a lot of words in those human error. I mean, we don't claim that every single copyist was divinely protected. So it's not surprising to find some slight variants. Uh, none of these unclear textual variants throw any doctrine of the faith into jeopardy. Though Bart Ehrman, we, rent, we mentioned at the beginning, he concedes that, quote, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. It's a kind of, he's a big anti-Christian writer, or not um, rationalist, I would say, but... Uh, so, some examples of variants, Matthew 5.27, say, you have heard that it was said by those of old, do not commit adultery. Other manuscripts say, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Okay, that doesn't really affect the substance of anything. Said of old, right. said. So, um, taken all in all, we would claim, we would make the claim that, that the historical reliability of the, the integrity of the Gospels is better established than any other work of ancient literature and taken together with the um, fact that they were written as history by eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses and who told the truth we would say that the historicity of the Gospels is established. Yeah. Which is... It makes sense. Once you've got that, you can go from there. So um, 
there's a, another discussion could happen about the Acts of the Apostles. It won't happen today, and maybe it won't happen at all. But um, there, are, there are notes that I can attach, and there are things that you can read about the, the historicity of the Acts of the Apostles as well. Similarly, they have lots of details that are borne out by secular history and have every mm. appearance of historicity. So just to kind of summarize this whole thing, we would say the New Testament's historicity and particularly the authenticity, the veracity, the integrity of the Gospels, it's a foundation for, for Christians, for Catholics. Sure. Historical and linguistic evidence points to the Gospel authors being who they claim they are. And that being so, their proximity, historical proximity to the events um, lends veracity to their accounts. Anyway, their commitment to the truth as authors is reflected in the life-threatening consequences they faced. The integrity of the Gospels and is well-supported, is unparalleled in the manuscript tr tradition, and the wide circulation in the early church, and particularly the continuity of key doctrines despite minor textual variants, um, argues in favor of their integrity. And all of this shows us that our faith is based firmly in what is reasonable. So it helps us to strengthen our faith and to consider the, the factual basis for Christianity. And this is super crucial because um, if we don't know for sure that these are historical documents, then we don't know if the miracles of Christ, the claims of Christ, Anything. the resurrection is true, yeah. and then we don't know if Christ founded a, a church, and we don't know anything. So hopefully we've said a little bit to defend at a podcast level of this level of podcast sufficiently yeah. for this, not sufficiently, but sufficiently for this scope, um, why we hold that the New Testament is, in particular the Gospels, are historical documents and can be used as the basis of further claims and judgments about Christ and his. And, and, and like you said, we'll, we'll link to the, to the document that, that you produced for us, father, which I appreciate very much. And also there's all, like you mentioned at the, at the earlier part, there's this whole long treatise, this book put together by these, uh, egghead, you know, very, very smart, very intelligent, very nerdy priests, uh, in yeah. the you know mid 20th century that goes through all of this in so much detail. You want to get lost in it. It's there. Yeah. Oh, those books and books and books and books and books. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Father Franks, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Great All to right. see you. Enjoy. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.